Hi, I'm Katie Kramer, President and CEO of the Betcher Foundation. Welcome to Colorado Leadership Stories, where we talk to everyday, courageous leaders who have made transformational impacts in their communities and are building a better state for everyone. You'll hear from leaders and organizations and communities throughout the state as we explore the idea that leadership is an activity that anyone can do. Today we are in studio with Sue Sava, a fourth generation educator who leads the Public Education and Business Coalition, or PEBC, a Colorado organization that has a national reputation for preparing and supporting both new and practicing teachers, while also shaping policies that emphasize student success and retention. As the president and CEO of PEBC, Sue oversees an organization with a 40-year history of collaborating with teachers, schools, and districts nationwide, catalyzing high-quality instruction. Uh, PEBC is also one of our partners at the Betcher Foundation uh, and is actually Betcher's largest grantee of all time. Our support goes back two plus decades, and since 2004, Betcher has awarded approximately $19 million to help develop great educators, improve student growth and success, and elevate the teaching profession. Sue, my dear friend, I'm so happy you are here with us today, and we just appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Katie. I'm so happy to be with you today. We are excited to learn from you about your career, your work, the impact of PEBC. So let's get started. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> it's clear you have a passion for education. You've got the history, but I know you have educated so many students yourself. Let's start with having you share a bit about your background and how you ended up in the education field. Okay, thanks for that question, Katie. Mm. Curtis said, tell your story. So I'll tell my story. I um, am a proud product of the New Jersey public schools. And in high school, I became a track and field champion for South Jersey. I was a sprinter. And I was therefore recruited to a lot of colleges for both track and field hockey. I was a very fast left wing. And somehow I leveraged that to get into Princeton. And I was the first person in my district to go to an Ivy League school. Um, and clearly for my athletics. <laughs> so that opportunity really changed my life. At that time, my family told me not to be a teacher. And as you noted, I'm a fourth generation educator. And they were worried about a lack of return on investment hmm. on an Ivy League education if I became a teacher too. So you know what happens when you tell a kid not to do a thing? <laughs> um, I came to Colorado to teach skiing in 1992. And I visited a school where I had the chills from my head down to my toes, and I knew that I was meant to be in this profession. So um, I can tell you a little bit more about that if you'd like, but that really summarizes it, I think. Well, and I'm curious, what has been the biggest leadership influences, both growing up and in your early years as a professional? You know, I appreciate that question. For me, it was my dad mm. um, who passed away when he was 57. So as we get closer to that age, I'm reminded that every single day counts. Mm. And we're um, here to make our impact, which I hope is long and lasting for a short amount of time. So that's what my dad's passing early reminds me of. My dad's story and how it links to mine, I think, is kind of fun. He was a very active young boy. And in 1943, his mom, who was an elementary school teacher, 
she decided that while her eldest three kids could attend the neighborhood school, because who didn't in 1943, that Cricket, his name was Christian, they called him Cricket, needed something else. So she marched him down to Glasper State Teachers College, went into the lab classroom, and she told the teachers, Cricket is a unique kid, and he needs really highly trained teachers, or he's going to get in trouble a lot. <laughs> so my dad attended Glasper State Teachers College lab classroom, where they experimented on cutting-edge instruction, and it did him well in life, I should say. It's amazing to me because PEBC, long before I came to PEBC, is known for national lab classrooms. And so the synergy of that is quite touching to me because in a lab classroom, you want to show what teaching can look like mm -hmm. and what it should look like for each and every learner. And the fact that my dad went to a lab classroom in 1943 is just striking to me. And then another thing about my dad and his um, impression on me is probably a little bit of ornery and a little bit of mischievousness. Mm -hmm. And so shortly thereafter, I think he was in fifth grade, he asked my grandmom for flying lessons. And she said, no, you could really hurt yourself. So he got a second paper route and he buzzed her house every morning. And to the day she died, she never knew. So he went and got flying lessons, rented a plane, saved up from his paper routes, and buzzed her house in his plane every morning. <laughs> Another aspect of my dad and his mentorship of me and uh, something I really respect, he was the first on his dad's side to go to college. He went to ag college. He went to agricultural college at Delaware Valley mm -hmm. Ag College. And he then went into military intelligence and lived in Ethiopia. He lived in Africa for a while. Um, when he returned and married my mom, also a teacher who was a child of two teachers, he had learned from the fancy people he called them in Doylestown, and he set out to live a really adventurous life. I would later learn that when he was in Ethiopia, um, he was flown to the base for a surgery just on a hernia, but he contracted hep B and hep C, which mm. he eventually died of. So the whole time I was alive, he knew he was dying because they said when he came back stateside, you're someday going to die of this, so make the best of it, Christian. And so um, it's probably why I live with a lot of passion and intensity. It took me until he died to understand, oh my gosh, the whole time I was alive, he was like, this day might be my last, so I'm going to build a schooner in the backyard and my family's going to live on it in the summers, which we did. He taught himself how to ski, and then he taught us how to ski. It was a lot about taking risks. Hmm. When he would take us to ski in the Poconos, he would turn all the clocks back in the house, talk about like every hour matters. He would wake us up and tell us it was 7 a.m. It was 3 a.m., and he would put us in the car, and we would all fall asleep, and then we would wake up four hours later, and the sun still wouldn't be up. And eventually we caught on to it, but that's you know, how he taught us how to live um, every day with a great passion, I think. And as my best friend and as my mentor, he a thousand percent believed in me. He saw me for who I was. I was allowed to make mistakes. Um, he encouraged me to make mistakes. Mm. He would tell me there's nothing I couldn't do. And I don't, that certainly is a hyperbole. And when I was recruited for hockey and track to go to Princeton, he said, nobody can stop you if that's what you decide you want to do. And I think it's kind of funny. I, I hope I got a little bit of his sense of humor. When I got in, 
um, to Princeton, there was a math teacher who said to me, you'll never get in. I think she thought I was really um, not a great student, but I had all A's and B's in this small high school. Uh, and, and I was just challenged by the way she taught, <laughs> frankly. And when I got into Princeton, my dad took the acceptance letter and he Xeroxed it and he signed Love Cricket and he put it on her chair. And so <laughs> I was talking to my mom today. I said, I'm pretty sure that today we call people like him neurodivergent. And maybe mm-hmm. people like me, really, I mean, he was neurodivergent. Um, mm-hmm. He never was inside a box. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just taught me the most about making an impact while you're here. Wow. Great, great story and incredible mentor. Um, He was. Yeah, that's awesome. Awesome. Well, let's um, turn to PEBC and talk a bit about your work there. And we'll talk about the how in a little bit, but I want to start with the why. It's a fundamental question to your work, and it's important to ask. So why is it so important for us to elevate the teaching profession? Oh, my gosh. It's from the bottom of my heart, I believe that the entire future of humanity depends on no less than the quality of our teacher workforce. Honest to God. So behind every scientist, if you think about it, every doctor, every Pulitzer Prize winner, every nurse, every social worker, um, are teachers who came first. And so we're currently at a tipping point in our country, and um, we're in a post-pandemic teacher shortage and a crisis of morale, unlike any we've seen in our country's history. And it's more important than ever to surround our teachers with support and retain them. And you'll hear me say it multiple times, they're worthy of that. Mm -hmm. And um, if we retain and love them up and nurture them and develop them highly, and they're retained, that will solve for our recruitment crisis. So it's a big problem to tackle. We're not going to do it alone, and we have to do it with smart partners like the Betcher Foundation and you. Well, they are saints for sure. And, and I would love for you to reflect on, you've been in the field a long time, but how has teacher preparation changed and adapted over the years? I really appreciate that question because I am a graduate of the PEBC teacher prep program 30 years ago. Hmm. So in 1993. And so I can really tell you from my perspective over time, how that teacher prep program has changed. And a lot of that is thanks to Betcher's early and continuous support. So we've had to be very nimble and very humble about understanding the needs of teachers and leaders and adapting to them rapidly. Mm-hmm. That's in the forefront of our minds is what do they need and how do we know? In many ways, it's different now what teachers and leaders are asking for than it was at the beginning of the pandemic. So we have turned a lot of content on its head. We have infused social-emotional learning and trauma-informed supports into everything we do. Teachers and leaders are asking for more virtual offerings, so we have created a humongous virtual suite for them. And they're asking for flexible models in, in schools, not to look like it's looked since the Industrial Revolution. We're studying that with a couple of other states right now. And they're asking for mental health tools and that is for themselves as well as for their students. They are also asking for better compensation so they don't have to work two or three jobs. I am married to a second grade teacher in Denver Public Schools, and he paints houses in the summer and he teaches skiing in the winter. So, you know, we live that life, and and that's after 25 years as a teacher he's doing that. Um, And I think we're near a inflection point 
in how we think about educators and education, how we think about the status of the profession, the status of the professionals, and what role we each play in highlighting the work that they do, the impact of their work on the economy and on our future and on our children, because really what's a more precious resource than our children? I would also say that PBC's policy work, we have a small but mighty team, and we're working very hard to address and improve the working conditions for our educators. We're getting a lot of feedback about what they need, and we are pivoting and adapting and working with Republicans and Democrats to say, what can we do? Mm-hmm. In PEBC's leadership framework, the opening line states, each school community deserves quality leadership. What does that type of leadership look like in a school, in a community context? I love that question. It's based on a lot of research Mm -hmm. that demonstrates that leadership is one of the most significant determinants of positive outcomes on students. So... Uh, When high-quality leaders shape excellent cultures, their entire system can thrive, even when facing significant obstacles. And the research shows that over and over again. Um, And I would say that each one of our 178 districts in the state right now are facing significant obstacles. Mm -hmm. And an example of that, when you ask what type of leadership we have right in our own school, in our community, in our backyard, that would exemplify that is Dr. Chris Godowski Mm -hmm. at Adams 12. Mm -hmm. And... I know that he is the type of leader that research demonstrates works. He's dealt with significant mental health impacts and I would say events at Adams 12 over the last few years, just like most of the districts across our state. Chris, to me, is an example of an incredibly humane, humble, and thoughtful leader. And he works with communities, families, and leaders to devise thoughtful solutions to each challenge as they continue to arise. He has students running a coffee business at Adams 12, and the kids brew and roast and sell the coffee. And we bring our residents there for seminar every Thursday. It's some of the best coffee I've ever had. Mm -hmm. And the students are in charge. And so if you look at the outcomes also for Adams 12, he is doing a beautiful job preparing students for career-connected learning, he and his team, I should say, as well as in the academic arena to prepare them for career and or college. So one thing I think is notable is if you look at PSAT scores across the state after the pandemic, as you know, as a country, our NAEP scores were abysmal. And somehow Adams 12 PSAT scores for high school were incredibly impressive coming out of the pandemic. So There's some magic going on there, and um, he's a leader to watch. Oh, wonderful. Well, and I, you mentioned lots of the districts across the state, and I'm curious, with your work in rural, what are some of the less obvious leadership challenges that specifically rural school leaders face compared to some of their urban or suburban counterparts? I adore that question because our work with our rural partners, it lights us up. It's Mm -hmm. one of our reasons for being. And typically, rural leaders have less access to many of the shared resources that are readily available for the urban areas. Many times, mandates fall on rural leaders who have little capacity to implement them. Because, for instance, they're already teaching AP Physics because they might have had that job posted for two years with no applicants. They are likely also coaching football 
They are potentially driving the school bus, all while connecting families to desperately needed community resources. The school has become an even more important hub of the community in our rural towns. When we work on bills to elevate educators, we always ask our rural collaborators, like the Rural Alliance, what they think and how this legislation might impact our rural colleagues, because often legislation disparately impacts the rurals who don't have additional capacity to handle legislative mandates. So they inform us quite a bit. Also, I want to say we work on training, developing, and retaining educators in rural areas across our state in both professional learning and residency. And we have some beautiful examples of excellent instruction in our rural areas across our state. So La Vida, Cortez, Durango, Archuleta, the San Juan region. We're building our first rural learning labs as we speak in La Vida. So I love to showcase the examples of what it looks like in the rurals as well. Mm-hmm. Sue, I want to talk about one of the initiatives that you're involved in, which is your pay for success model. I just think this is so cool. The model helps to address a severe statewide teacher shortage by expanding the pipeline of high quality teachers and incentivizing their retention. What is innovative about this model and what are some of the outcomes that you're seeing I love that question, (laughs) and I could nerd out on this for a while, so I'll try to keep it succinct. To me, in my opinion, pay for success is truly a social and a fiscal innovation Mm. in the education landscape. PEBC's was the first pay for success in the nation for an ed prep program based on PEBC's excellent retention data. And this innovation, in many ways, is thanks to our long and proud relationship with the Betcher Foundation and with you because that partnership laid the foundation and the groundwork to build highest quality teacher residency, which then results in the highest retention data we know in the country. And when you look at PBC teacher residency data, 81% of teachers are still in the field after five years, whereby most of the country is experiencing lower than 50% retention Mm -hmm. in the first five years, which we know are critical. So our pay for success currently funded by the Northern Trust Investment Bank, the Gates Family Foundation, and the Adibi Fund of the Denver Foundation is based on this excellent retention data. So it's based on all of those years of achieving that longevity in the profession. And with pay for success, we're able to leverage the strong retention to drive dollars towards our unique way of preparing and especially retaining educators. So one innovation is that social impact investing that's on outcomes, as you know, and not on inputs, which I think is the way all work should be funded. It resonates with our board. It resonates with me as a leader that instead of asking for a grant, which is based on an input, why don't we see what the data tells us and base the investment on that? And what's a beautiful thing is that the Northern Trust Investment Bank came in and said, we are actually going to shift the risk of teachers staying or not off of PEBC and off of the districts and onto us Hmm. as the financers. Um, So that's been a beautiful partnership. Another aspect of the partnership that I'm really proud of is our partnership with Social Impact Solutions because they achieved some of the first successful social impact finance deals in the U.S. And they're very low-key, but they are in D.C. quite a bit teaching others how to do these deals for the greater good. I think to me, what's been successful in that initiative is working across multiple sectors. 
So in addition to working across business and education sectors, which are probably obvious, we've also done some legislative work to ensure that multiple stipends are available for residents. And this innovation allows career changers to not have to take a year out of the workforce to become a teacher. So the stipends, which currently add up to $54,000 a year when stacked and used to be 1500 right. a year just four years ago, that allows us to tackle the barrier of cost, which has resulted in a cohort of teachers this year who are 30% teachers of color. The average cross-country is 10%. We need to have teachers who look like the children we serve. So pay for success is also allowing us to work with business, with economists, with legislators to tackle this issue. And now 100% of new districts to the teacher residency are signing straight into the pay for success model, betting on results. Wow. Well, I know that's been underway for a while, and it's so exciting to see it going. Thank you. Yeah. It's build, the success is building. Sue, so for those listening who care about their schools and have fond memories of their favorite teacher growing up, I'm wondering what all of us can do to do a better job of elevating the teaching profession. I love that question, and I'll give you two short examples. One is... PBC's board has been very supportive and encouraging. Kaiser Permanente, for instance, has come and said, we will give you a million point five to invest in teachers' mental health. Mm. If teachers' mental health is sound, the students they teach are more likely to feel grounded and to feel safe psychologically. That's an incredible gift. We're tracking that. That's out of Kaiser Permanente National. And if it's successful, we may be able to scale that nationwide. Another example is Davida, who, when they said, you know, what's the most pressing need? We said, give us a demographic. They said Aurora Public Schools. We said, you know, sometimes we have 60 children in a cafeteria. We're short two teachers, maybe three. Maybe some quit yesterday. We would love your help staffing lunch breaks, recess, so that our teachers can go to the bathroom, make a phone call call their doctor, make an appointment, call back their own child's school, right? These are things that typically our teachers do not get to do during the day. So Davida's making this beautiful impact in Aurora. And we have built out um, an entire suite of training mm -hmm. for business leaders who want to come in and help classrooms in that way. So those are just two examples. Also, you can go to PEBC slash get involved. And there are multiple ways you can support professional learning for early teachers, for late stage teachers, for leaders. We have people who are donors to specific areas of our work. We have people who just say, I have a half a day every month. Can mm. I get plugged in somewhere where I can help? So businesses have started coming to us and saying, here's what we care about. We don't dictate it to them. And then we say, well, we'll help you design a way to get involved in the schools that feels meaningful to you. Love that. So before we go to the lightning round of questions, um, is there anything else you want to talk about with regards to PEBC, current initiatives, other things that we haven't covered that you're really excited about right now in your work? Oh, that's a great question. I would say one thing is that we have over 100 strategic partners who are both reform and union, Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians. We don't support bills if they're not nonpartisan. 
you know, our work in the rurals, we have five rural cohorts now mm-hmm. for our teacher residency. It's, we have the same amount of teachers in the rurals as we do in the urban. So I'm really proud of the way we have made sure that every voice is welcome at the table. It's a third space. Mm-hmm. And I think it makes us an honest broker for important conversations like the one we're convening now, which is the largest and most diverse stakeholder conversation <laughs> happening at the state level, and it's on school safety, which can be a contentious topic. And we have ensured that all stakeholders feel safe and we're getting ready to come forward. It started in April with some recommendations before this session. Mm -hmm. So I feel that we can make an impact because we have such a diversity of perspectives at the table. That's great. Thanks for sharing that. All right, Sue. So what is your favorite Colorado hobby? My favorite Colorado hobby is skiing. I was going to say. Right? <laughs> I was going to say, well, you know this. <laughs> and um, my son competes for Team Breck on the big mountain team. Mm-hmm. So we are 28 weekends on the road. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just fills my heart to ski as a family. And my dad used to say the family that plays together stays together. So that's what makes my heart so happy. I love that. How about your favorite Colorado landmark? Okay, I know this isn't a landmark, but I also can never be inside the box. So ball arena, because of my heart is so full when I get to see the avalanche play in person. So I'm going to say ball arena, <laughs> I which it. I know is not a landmark. Sure it is. Sure it is. It's great. Okay, so what action hero do you most identify with? There's a whole story behind this. We're not going to talk about it today. Nancy Drew. Oh. Mm. I love it. Okay. Love, <laughs> love those books growing up. All right. And um, what are you currently binging? Maybe you're reading a book or watching a show or listening to a podcast. Like what What uh, are you drawing some inspiration from or some, some entertainment maybe? Okay. The book that I'm drawing the most inspiration from is High Conflict by Amanda Ripley, which was recommended to me by the former commissioner, Katie Anthes. Mm-hmm. Would love to book club it with you. It's fascinating. And it's about navigating in a really nonpartisan way, very difficult topics and conversations. Mm -hmm. And I am obsessed. The show is The Blacklist. And it just occurred to me when I was writing up some talking points for today that it was probably because of my dad's time and intelligence. Mm. But I love The Blacklist. And I'm powering through all the episodes late at night. Thank you for that fun question. You bet. Sue, thank you so much for coming in today to visit with us and share your leadership story and inspiration and frankly, how you're continuing to develop and grow and support those teacher leaders that are in the classrooms and making a difference for our children. So thank you for your work. It's very humbling to be here and it's an honor. So thanks for having me. Thanks, Katie. Thank you for joining Colorado Leadership Stories where we hope to inspire the next generation of Colorado community builders, doers, and difference makers. Colorado Leadership Stories is presented by the Betcher Foundation. The Betcher Foundation supports Colorado by empowering leaders and communities with tools to tackle challenges and pursue opportunities, building a better state for everyone. With an 85-plus year legacy of giving back, we're committed to amplifying our impact for future generations. That's the spirit of Betcher.